everybody. Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. Appreciate y'all being here, supporting the people who support us. We try to, again, choose these people very carefully. So we are promoting things we like and use and are a part of. And so thank you for supporting that and supporting us. And don't forget these streaming shows, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 o'clock. Um, again, it's, whenever somebody gets silenced, I immediately try to reach in and, and see what's going on. Just well, My instinct is just interview them. And that's what that show is all about. And of course, After Dark is still lurking around. And Adam and I still have a podcast as well. So don't don't forget that it's out there. Today, Bridget Fetessy is here. Walk in the welcome. Walk in's welcome. Her uh, Twitter handle is Bridget Fetessy, B R A D G E T P H E T A S Y. Not easy, but thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is crazy because I grew up, I'm Gen X, so I grew up listening to Loveline. So it's it was Craziness, right? It was the background to my entire adolescence. Do you have any questions about people usually have questions about Loveline or you know they just or they remember something and I like just f- I just remember that it was something that helped me so much as I was kind of coming into my own sexuality and just I, I didn't have very m- many places to turn and it yeah. felt like a place that, was that wasn't so judgmental that was so. the plan I mean I, I, I started when I was 24 wow and it was two things one was Anthony Fauci who was somebody I was admired very much and was sort of leading us through the AIDS pandemic and I was dealing with shit tons of AIDS patients mm. uh, was telling us to go out and educate 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 get out the media and talk about this thing and I was shocked when I first ran on the radio and had realized that no one was talking to young people about it. It was unbelievable. So A was that. And B, just I thought, God, this stuff is so digestible. It's not that hard. I was 24 years old. And I thought, well, when I was 17, 18, why, why didn't I have something like this? This is what yeah. I would have wanted. So that's how we started. Yeah. And I was t- my husband and I were talking about just I, I was talking about how when I was coming of age sexually and I was Catholic, I was raised Catholic. So I was convinced that I was going to get AIDS and die. But he Perfect. mentioned, you know, our whole generation kind of thought that. Until I know. You well, guys you know, what's interesting about that, <laughs> that, you know, what's very interesting about that was uh, think about the COVID uh, pandemic and how the agencies of the government used fear as one of their modulating instruments to try to motivate people we did that back in the AIDS epidemic too, very consciously. Yes. And so it's interesting that Dr. Fauci has not let go on the use of fear. I I, I was guilty of uh, scaring people. We we had 275,000 deaths and congratulated ourselves that we didn't have 2 million because we forced, you know, convinced everybody. And uh, there was a mistake. We, we mm-hmm. should not have used so much fear. We certainly shouldn't have used so much fear during uh, the pandemic, this recent pandemic. So there we are. Yeah, I know. I wonder what the long-term cost of that will be. <laughs> oh, we're you're, we're living in it right now, my dear. I mean, the yeah. mental health consequences have been just profound, profound. Yeah, the loss of credibility, I think, is something that we'll see generation generations of Agreed. playing out. Agreed. It's been it's been a well. There's two things I'm hearing now. You know, one is I, I don't trust doctors anymore. Period, mm-hmm. which, which mm-hmm. is a very sad indictment. And I don't trust what's coming out of the government or the public health, which also is very alarming because when we do need to listen to them, people won't. Right. Don't know what to believe and what not to. So where'd you grow up? I moved a lot. I was born in New York City and then I moved pretty much every year and a half until I was about 18. And um, my family, my father had a job where he was traveling a lot and um I guess he bought and sold Russian technology. That's the answer we were supposed to tell what? everybody. <laughs> what? He hates like, when I talk about this. Like on the, like on the, like, a, like as an arms trader. I don't, I honestly, we just moved a lot. It wasn't international. It was, it was all domestic. And was he moving a lot because he was trying to get away from something or, or hide from something. I don't know that I'll ever know. That, wow. I just remember telling teachers when I was the new girl, you know, they'd say, um, oh, and what is your, when they'd ask what your dad does and, uh, and our kind of answer we were told was my dad buys and trades, uh, buys and sells Russian technology. And it was just like crickets and the teacher <laughs> would move on. <laughs> did you ever go, did you visit Russia? No, I've, I've always wanted to. My first marriage was to a Belarusian actually. So I feel like that's as close to visiting Russia as I ever got was marrying so, a Belarusian. 
So you're you're sort of visiting that heritage again here in me. So okay. my family was Belarus, Ukraine, part of the big diaspora at the beginning of the 20th century. Oh, okay. And so here we are. I'm going to have a lot of questions on our crossover episode on my podcast about this. I may this. not know a damn thing. They they essentially <laughs> they you know you, you they just left it behind and just yeah. like it's over and and they call themselves Russians. We're Russians. We're Russians. Yep. They didn't yep. they didn't even worry about the heritage or the ethnicity or anything. Just we had to get out of there. Yes, we had a we had a nanny Sonia and she was from Estonia. Uh, Sonia from Estonia, and that was the <laughs> that was the one. But Estonia is is believe it or not, their heritage is Finnish. Mm. It's a Finnish population. But her story was they... harrowing. Getting out. Say that again. There her what? story was harrowing. Getting oh, out. Harrowing. Of I thought you said heroin. I was like, no. <laughs> <"Huh>? <laughs> My nanny was. That's how I got addicted to heroin. My oh, nanny. Nice. Well done. Thank, thank you, nanny. <laughs> Uh, so it's a beautiful country too. It really is very pretty. The people are very pretty, very, much like the Finnish. And, uh, but under Russian occupation, I mean, or, you know, some of the Soviet union who, who knows what it was like. Yeah. It, do, it doesn't sound great from, no, sound great. from what I'm I heard. I'm glad your dad supported the economy. So, <laughs> so, so, and then you went, where, where did you go to school and that kind of thing? I mean, have, what do you call home? Um, I call Rhode Island home. Okay. So, and I was in LA for 16 years. So mm. that's my second home up until recently. I'm, I was one of the many basics who left and moved to Texas. What, what <laughs> part of it? What part of LA? Um, I was in West LA. Mm. Yeah. It just Are got, you in Texas now? I am. Yeah. We Austin like, like everybody or? Yeah. 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 So we I moved. Down, down there every six weeks. Oh, okay. Um, you know, Tom Segura and his wife, Christina P have a big, uh, studio now it's a huge oh, okay and i do a stream or a youtube channel for them oh um, i love them um dark yes they're great oh yeah okay of course they're they're great i love it um i'm getting used to it i'm i've only been here three weeks so mm. it's definitely oh my God. yeah well, brand new well it's so funny when uh los angeles southern californians or any californians head on down to uh austin they're often 30 to 60 minutes away from Austin when yeah. they actually set up shop. So where are you? I don't, you don't have to divulge exactly, but I mean, are you near the downtown area or no? No, we're 30 to 60 minutes there you away. Go. <laughs> there my, my husband was like moving to Austin is like moving to Echo Park in like 20 years ago. So he, he wasn't really that keen on moving to Travis County. So we wanted to get out of Austin proper and, um, be in an area that feels a little bit more Texas, which I yeah. think we yeah, are. I think that's what people kind of look for. They kind of want that. My old, uh, if you, I don't know how long you hung with Loveline, but the last co-host was uh, Mike Catherwood, and he's right in that area. It's it's actually crazy, as you know, just how booming the whole area is. It's I. It reminds me so some of the time that I spent when I was. Like uh, in my junior high and high school years, we lived in Minnesota for a bit. And the suburbs of Minnesota, of Minneapolis at that time, it was very similar. It was these very, very busy. It was like a rural area that became residential almost yeah. overnight. So you yeah, have yeah. these free, they're essentially freeways. They're four yeah. lane roads that are 65 miles an hour with all yeah. these developments off of them. Um, and it's, it's wild. It was wild. Wisconsin or Minnesota. This was in Minnesota. Minnesota. So the interesting thing I noticed driving across country one time is when you hit Minnesota or particularly Minneapolis, it's like the first Western city that the roads are bigger. Everything's bigger, spread out more. And I thought, Oh, this is, I recognize this. This is, this is like Denver. It's like Phoenix. It's like Los Angeles. It, it was surprised me that it was so far east that, that you sort of first encounter the big wide streets. So that's yeah. how, how it got it, set. It was definitely, it. this is very reminiscent of that part of my childhood. Just the, the burbs popping up and these, what were just, I mean, cow pastures essentially. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not sure exactly how all the locals feel about it. I'm sure there's some, resentment and anger <laughs> that yeah. their quiet way of life has been invaded but sure. it seems I mean, like 
Wasn't Little House on the Prairie in Minnesota? Wasn't Part it? of it, yep. yeah. Wisconsin, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. I was obsessed. She got can They canceled her. They canceled the Lori. They canceled Lori. Why? What? Because <laughs> yeah. of how she looked at or talked about the natives, or yes, yep. They, yep. She, she didn't really say anything except just describe that it was confusing to her and what she was seeing. I think it was. Bit. I believe it was something Ma said. Ma said, described them as uh, in a way that um, was of the time, I guess. So, it, yeah, they canceled it. Well, they were scared of them. They, they're, they're, do you remember one of the books? They, they actually had a war, war uh, something. You know, overnight they were trying to decide, are, they, are we going to kill all these settlers or are we going to move on? Yeah. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I, read, I read these books to my daughter. I thought they were amazing. Yep. <laughs> And, they were uh, my favorite. And they sort of watched the these Native Americans stream by angry, a lot of them angry and pissed and wanting to kill them. Rightfully. <laughs> Rightfully angry. <laughs> Re- reason, no, I'm, I'm not saying without justification, <laughs> but thing, things, I, well, you know, what's interesting, what's kind of, you know, the slippery slope stuff, the reality is probably, you know, these these settlers like the Ingalls family offered, you know, no, no problems for them but right what, followed, what came on the heels of them is what the problem was the slippery slope yeah so, yeah those were my yeah. favorite books growing up and that was when i was very much um i would say just a, a left-wing liberal grew up that way it was the it was the water that i swam in to the point that i didn't really even know any different and when when they canceled Laura Ingalls Wilder, I was like, "You're dead to me now." <laughs> now I'm changing. <laughs> You've gone too far. That's what, that was my red pill moment. <laughs> it's interesting. Globally, humans are facing massive problems that are widely ignored by governments and the media. Like personal space invaders. I had it with these couples that sit on the same side of the booth. Yak mouths. Stupid stick figure bumper stickers. Almond milk. You cannot milk an almond. Hi, I'm Jennifer. And I'm Angie. We call her Pumps, and we're the hosts of I've Had It. Pumps, tell the listener where they can find us. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it. See you next Tuesday. And are you sort of politically active now or are you staying out of the, the Michigan? Uh, yeah. I have a show. I have another show like you. I have too many shows or or just as many as I want. And yes. one of them is um, Dumpster Fire yes. on YouTube where I make fun of. I just make fun of everything because we live in the dumbest times. And well, zero in on that because I could not agree more with that. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and I, I don't side with I, just the extremes everywhere to me are, are yeah. the things. They're just so dumb. And believe me, I, what you talk about love, like most of my career was spent fighting the right. You know, yes. they, with the morning after pills and abortion pill. And you shouldn't be talking about these things or whatever. I, I years and years and years of if you remember the first Bush administration and the FCC coming in, yes. on Howard Stern and everybody it was terrible. Of course. And uh, and now it's the other side doing the same thing. It's just it's all dumb, as you say. It's, it's And it's, now this backlash on you're seeing the backlash on the right. They're returning to their former selves in some ways. No, in ter- uh, you're right. In the sort of the, <laughs> the sort of moralizing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very dangerous road for them to travel down very quickly. Yeah, it doesn't go well for them usually. And no. I it's I I like you remember the FCC, Howard Stern. Um, I know Tipper Gore was against yep. rap music as nope, well. That was but, part of that whole time. That yep. was that time. And it was that was that was it was it's been strange to kind of I don't know. I feel like I'm in upside down land a lot of the time. Oh my God. You're saying words are coming out of your mouth. They come out of mine all the time. <laughs> this is the dumbest times. I'm in the upside down. I don't know how long is this going to last. I don't know what's going on. I can't make sense of this. What's yeah. motivating these people. Yeah. I just, I can't figure it out. Yeah. Because there's, there's part of me that I try to just believe that it's incompetence or people. There is certainly up. that there's plenty of that for sure. But it feels like something, something sinister. Which feels like human foible, like human weakness. You know what I mean? Like yes. cognitive dissonance and unable to admit when you're wrong and can't change direction and can't be objective about things and very tribal. Those are all human weaknesses. Those are not strengths. And that's yes. at, at humans at their worst. 
Yes. And it does feel, it feels that, I don't know, there's something sinister. I can't put my finger on it. I don't, because I don't exactly know what it is, but it is, there's sometimes when I feel overwhelmed by how stupid everything is and I'll see people jumping on a lot of these bandwagons I'm like, they're, they're, how do these, how, how does, I don't know. There's just, it's, there's something, the messaging and propaganda is, is so consistent. Yes. Yes. It it is the, the persuasion, uh, sophistication seems to be, it was, it's brainwashing. I mean, that's what persuasion is brainwashing and somebody seems to know something or somebody seems good at it or something. Yep. Uh, on either side and it gets people all going it seems it's and so yeah i became very i guess i described it as politically homeless and i'm with and, you in the in the past five i was not political at all i i was writing a column at playboy and it was my dream job and i started that column in 2015 was when i got the job and i i was basically just drinking and waiting tables and trying to make it in Hollywood as a writer and a stand-up. And I always wrote and I, and I got sober in 2013. And then I got this column, which was my dream job at Playboy. I wrote a weekly column and then I got to do the Playboy advisor, which was iconic for me. And I, it was literally like a girl from the nineties woke up out of a blackout and stumbled online and yeah. I did not go to college. You asked me where I went to school. I went yeah. for half of a year and I dropped out because I couldn't really afford it. I didn't know what I wanted to do yep. and I didn't want to be in debt forever. And after Good that, choice. my parents were like, okay, well, you know the deal. You're yeah. not, you're on your own if you're not going to college. So mm-hmm. I, I had a long, hard path and made a lot of bad choices for myself along the way. But always I wanted to be a writer and entertain just do comedy or do sketches and I loved my job at Playboy but I had no idea what was going on in academia and what it was churning out into the world how about how Playboy itself has been sort of the revisionist history around Hugh Hefner and his things it's a really interesting thing to kind of examine but it's it's easy to cancel it but it it's not how it play it's it it to do that just just dismiss it is missing how history evolves you know how culture yeah. evolves it was kind of a really important part of everything i and, went i went in at a very strange time it was right when they stopped doing nudes yeah. for that minute and then they went back and it was really the me too era was ramping up. So it was very, even got, bare, barely. I mean, it came to a couple of years later, right? Right. It's it's I think it started with Cosby, which I believe was when was Cosby? 2013, 2014. God, was it that think long ago? It might have been. So and, it was, but Cooper Hefner had a big influence on that phase, right? Yeah. Uh, and and he was woke ish or early woke, I'd say <laughs> early days of woke. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and now he looks conservative, by the way. Now he looks conservative. <laughs> yeah. But it's just so crazy. Yep. But I, I wrote an article in those. I think the first one that they did without nudes. I can't. Remember oh, okay. It yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah. It was a privilege. I really thought that was a good thing. And um and and. I always worried. Um, it it seemed so. It, it didn't think about what they were doing, you know, in terms of what it meant for women and the impact of women. It's really interesting. We we were watching. My wife and I were watching a um, documentary about Playboy or Hugh Hefner or something, and it was one of these parties where he had everybody roller skating on the uh, tennis court. And there were women <laughs> in bikinis going around, and it just and some of these were like substantial people. And I, I asked my wife, I go, "Why did you guys put up with that? Why did it was a probably nineteen eighty two or eighty four or something?" And I just, just I said, "Why'd you do that?" She goes, "It was the only move we had. It's mm. the only move. So it's, it's the only way we got power. So we did it." And I thought, "Oh, that's profound." Uh, that women saw that unless unless they were you know, skilled or something or were professional or something. They, they, everybody was just there. You either went to, you know, your lawyer or is everybody else, you know, and everybody else did not have very much access to uh, leverage power empowerment of any type. Right. 
Yeah, it was I it was interesting reading. I read Louise Perry's book, um, A Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which is fantastic. And she opens up talking about Hugh Hefner. And I was always pro Hugh Hefner in that he was very pro women's rights and particularly women's reproductive rights. And as she mentions in her book, she's like, Well, yeah, of course men are going to be pro right. <laughs> pro the pill. Right. They, they love being able to have sex without consequences. Right. And it that made me think about things a little bit differently or it lo- makes me look at them differently. It's true. It wasn't just his benevolent, you know, spirit of, of freeing the women. It yeah. was also good for him. Well, there was a, there was a cultural, um, mm, what should we call it? Uh, uh, something that were men and women, young people were being taught at the time, which was that males and females, it was a different, had a different emphasis than today with gender and stuff. It was all men and women are exactly the same, particularly mm. as it pertains to their relationship goals and their sexuality. They are the same. And any anything you see that's a difference, literally, literally the young males were taught, I mean, this is insane. They were taught, look, if she seems embarrassed or resistant, so your job, because that's all society putting that on her. She wants right. it as badly as you do. So your job is to be aggressive. So wow. she doesn't have to feel bad about being, you know, being guilty or, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> it's the most disgusting. This is what you taught young people. And yes. I, I remember the early days of Loveline. This is the stuff I was trying to address, that there is so much just incredible misinformation about how people functioned and it, and people made their own assumptions about what other people were experiencing and it just created a mess. And here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Nothing's changed. A different oh, kind of mess. Different, We've created a, a different, different kind, kind of, of madness. <laughs> yeah. It's completely. So, yeah. Now it's, it's still people telling you what gender should be, but they shouldn't be anything. It's a very confusing. It's an even more confusing time. It, it just has a, it's, it's kind of in, I'm going to say this out loud because I, I mean it uh, with peace and love. It, it's a sad time. It seems to me yes. because people are not getting together. They're not dating. They're not building understanding relationships and the dating and having these, having fun. Fun has been yeah. left out of it, I think. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a weird thing, you know, as I've been reflecting on the, the different, many different ways Hugh Hefner is, has been viewed and particularly what Louis said, e- even if, even if it was self-serving for him to be pro female, you know, reproductive rights, it's still liberated women in many respects. There is still, right. It's it's not been entirely bad for them, um, right. although a lot of people would argue. And I wrote a piece that went huge about I um, I regret being a slut, and it was just me reflecting on a lot of a lot of the the feelings that I have about this stuff. But there's no way that even that essay, which is one piece of how I feel, I would have to write an entire book that examines every different aspect of how I was raised, what messaging I received. I think the messaging around sexuality is very confusing. It doesn't seem like it's really gotten any better. It seems even more confusing. And then people say, oh, you know, this is feminism and this is the messaging that you're getting from Playboy. But you also get weird messaging from the church and from religion so it's it's not just the the left-wing feminists who no who have yeah. weird messaging around no sex. no it's, it's a michigas it's a big mess yeah yeah and, and so now and then you had addiction on top of that because yes. because sexuality you know the if you do a first step workbook there's a whole area dedicated to sexuality you know yes that, that's before you get to your fourth and fifth step and <laughs> and you can do a circle plan you know which many addicts do you know around around sex um and so that's another driving force that nobody tells you about yeah i th- I think for me addiction and and 
sexuality and shame were so and this is so true with men and women and and addiction and it's often i like the fact that there there used to be i hope there still are men and women meetings because i feel like there's a lot of shame around sex for both of the sexes but it's a different kind of shame oh my god men it's usually like what they did and with women it's more guilt yeah exactly so true yeah and with women it's what happened to them or what they I don't know there were just so many situations where I that I was in where and and I hate saying this out loud but it's just the truth it's like well a a blowjob will get me out of this you know without maybe getting in an awkward situation it's funny you'd say that because I used to say that in the 90s and 2000s that 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 behavior oral sex female and male oral sex became extremely popular and what I was hearing was a lot of women saying stuff like that then then it takes the heat out of the we're gonna have sex thing we don't have to worry about that then yeah yeah, exactly. Because they don't have to worry about pleasing me. It's actually a way to just be like, okay, and now you can go to bed. <laughs> it just yeah, like, like I don't really want to have sex with this guy. I'm not sure if I'm ready or whatever. I don't have to even address it now. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I'll just give you solved. a blowjob to avoid getting raped. <laughs> it, there, there's it, that's the extreme version. I mean, it's not funny, but it's, it is it's funny because of... that's the that's where it goes. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the sort of I think a lot of women identify with that moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I put myself in so many, you know, I got, I was in rehab for the first time when I was 19. And and so was, uh, you said, you mentioned alcohol to be outset. Is that your first drug? But my first drug was alcohol and weed very closely behind. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. weed was always really my true love. God, and uh, Bridget, weed now is, it's so powerful. It's so, it, I've worked it, it on is, weed farms. It is ruining people. It, it's, it's just, it's such a different phenomenon now. It's crazy. And it's, and it's, it's come on all of a sudden, like this incredibly powerful weed. People are doing the dabs and this stuff. And we're seeing oh, I know. episodes and manic episodes. I know. The addictions are more common. It's just, whoa. Wow. It's crazy. crazy. I've worked in that industry, even even in sobriety, actually. And just seeing how, you know, I always joke, like, I'm old enough to remember when there were seeds in my weed. Mm-hmm. Like, kids these days don't know what that even no. is. Mm-mm. And no. it, it's they've really perfected it. These guys are, the guys who are in this industry are chemists. They're mm-hmm. biologists. They yep. know about cloning. They're, yep. they're geniuses. And yep. they've really per- taken this weed and brought it to its true like most powerful essence yep that's right no and it's and of course when you just like fentanyl or xanax you know the more powerful the more tightly binding the chemical is at the receptor site uh, the the more severe the consequences yes simple simple i've written and talked a lot about how hard it is to quit weed and when i first went into rehab it was we all laughed at people who can't because i ended up escalating through my teens and by the time I went into rehab I was in for heroin addiction although real heroin addicts might not consider me a true junkie because I didn't shoot it I was smoking and snorting it even myself being a junkie has an insecurity about that (laughs) did did you well let's talk about we'll talk about that because I I know I understand the culture of heroin it's kind of interesting junkie pride is crazy yeah yeah it's very interesting but did you talk about weed with Joe Rogan? Yeah, we've talked about it. Um, did he dismiss it? No, I mean, I he, think... He got angry with me for daring to treat cannabis addiction. Oh, interesting. And I thought, uh, Joe, it's, I, I only help people that want to stop. I'm not saying weed is good or bad. I'm saying that some people develop this illness caused addiction, called addiction, and I can help them. That's all. It can happen from all kinds of things, and weed is yeah. Oh, that's interesting because we talked, I talked about how it was my favorite drug of choice and one of the hardest to quit for me and how I think people minimize how hard it is to quit. Oh, yeah. Because it's so insidious. It's like, it's not going to ruin your life. You're just never going to get off the couch. Correct. It, 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 it's, it's a little more complicated than that for, for multiple reasons. But first of all, a, the, the concentration today is ruining will ruin your life so, yeah. so we've we've crossed over i'm interested in, i i i have sort of generalizations about every drug of choice weed is changing fast it I, is. it's it's going to be a new constellation it is destroying people's lives now not everybody some 
Uh, and uh, what was the other thing you what you just said about weed? And, oh, to get off the couch, the the this ability to do things, uh, to go from planning an idea to doing something and executing, that's a specific neural mechanism. And that is clearly blocked by weed. But the other part that's blocked is the insight. It's called anisognosia. It actually has a name. The insight into what's happening to you as a result of the weed. You, you, your brain won't let, won't, uh, you can't make the connection. You know, uh, denial is the sort of more common sort of variety of that, but there's a biological basis to some of this and it, it's becoming really prominent with weed right now. Oh, I know so many people have had psychotic breaks from weed. Uh, it, uh-huh. It's definitely young people too. Yep. The- that, that was, that was when they used to report that I actually was skeptical. I thought, ah, I don't know. Maybe it was just somebody already, had something, but mm. no more. I'm not skeptical. No more. I get it. Yeah. Message received. Pick up that glass of Pinot Grigio, your drink of choice, and come have some fun with us on Turtle Time. We're going to do more than just drink and party on this podcast, Mom. I know. I know. Okay. If you don't know who I am, well, I'm Ramona Singer. And that's my daughter, Avery. And you probably know us best from the Real Housewives of New York. And now you'll get to know us even better on our podcast, Turtle Time. Let's make more iconic moments together every Wednesday. It's Turtle Time. Follow, rate, and review now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. So that was my, that was really my first love. It is, as I explained it on Rogan, it was, it was just a nice fuzzy distance from the world. But as the weed got stronger, it started making me anxious. It well, was that's what ne- happens. That That's the old version of what, I don't know if this is still going to happen because it's so powerful, but what used to happen, you start to get anxious and depressed. You smoke more, get stronger stuff, and that accelerates the depression and the panic. Mm. Then you switch to something else because you're an addict and you're consistently looking outside of yourself to solve internal problems. Of course, you continue doing that. And uh, and I guess that's where the heroin kicked in, yeah? Yeah, I I, I just, I I always... I didn't, I, I absolutely drank to be cool and fit in. And I made the whole party girl a part of my persona, but it was never really what my goal was. My goal was oblivion. And the first time I did heroin, I found that Zen, like oblivion that I think I had been searching for, for so long, just shut my brain up. I just wanted to shut my brain up and I still, you know, I'm, I'll have, um, God willing and me willing, I will have 10 years in, in October coming up, which is science fiction. When I first got sober, that (laughs) was you, you, 10 days was something that was a bridge too far. So 10 years, you're like, you're a liar. Shut up. That's, Mm -hmm. that's not a real thing. Nobody can do that. Yeah. Nobody can not have a drink for 10 years. That's ridiculous. And I, here I sit, which is crazy. And I used to, I'm in 12 step. I, I've tried in between my first run in rehab and getting sober at 35 I was, I tried everything. I did yoga. I did therapy. I did anything I possibly could to avoid going back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous yeah. and, in my and the case. Way, and the way those of us in the treatment field see that, understand that is I'll do anything except stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also the thing that'll help me stop. <laughs> anything except not do this anymore. Right, and exactly. they, they the, there is some stuff in that book that is truly inspired. Like yeah. the line who among us who cares to admit complete defeat and who among us. You know, there's that is that was a big part of it. There's something about saying I'm people have a lot of resistance to this. I see this all the time now, too, because it's like, oh, I'm trying to they have all these different terms for quitting drinking because they don't want to say that they're an alcoholic. And for me, I there was a lot of power in that because it took away my ability to deny that to myself. Once those words came up, which is why I was so resistant to saying it. And so was that first step is very hard admitting I had a problem asking for help 
and saying I am I come from a long line of alcoholics. Of it's in my family. It has to be. Yeah. And and it I'm Irish Catholic. It was it was it was something it's what? Not, it's a Irish culture. Irish and alcoholism? You're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the culture. You know, I have a whole stand up routine about how my family when I got sober sat me down and they were like, We're worried about you, Bridge. You quit drinking. Are yeah, you this okay? is the worst. Are you pregnant? <laughs> no, we and the word we use is surrender. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a full surrender and capitulation is hard for people. It's hard. Ugh. I understand it. Yeah, no, it was not. It took me a long time. And there's that that other term that I love, concede to your innermost self. I would say mm-hmm. it took me, even once I came back at 35, I had hit an emotional rock bottom. And I, I was also probably at a, another, my first rock bottom was so much that I lost everything. I lost my health. I lost my, I dropped out of, that was when I dropped out of college. Although I think I would probably make the argument that I didn't know how to say I didn't want to be in college right, because right. I was the oldest and I just, that was the expectation. So there might health? be, Oh, it was horrible. I was, I, because I was smoking it. I had really chronic bronchitis. I was 89 uh-huh. pounds. I was, I mean, they were, the doctors were like, you were going to die very, very soon once I went into the hospital and that first rehab as much as I didn't stay sober because I was like, I'm not going to not drink when I, I was 19. I'm like, I'll quit. I just told myself that it was heroin. I'm, I always said anyone who does, who did heroin would get addicted to it. And I can still drink and smoke weed and all these other things because, and every other drug under the sun. And, and thank God, by the way, I quit when I did because I absolutely would be dead more likely of a fentanyl overdose, probably oh, yeah. from using cocaine, oh, for not sure. even from heroin. Yeah, that's so right. So I, I just, I mean, it's a miracle. I made it between 20 and 35 with the, the situations that I look back on and put myself in just it, it it's a, it's a miracle. There's no, it's just luck. Like mm. there's, there's no, I, I did such and I always stayed away from prescription drugs. They scared me, which I realize is a hilarious paradox. But it it was always, I grew up in a family with a lot of mental illness. And I saw the person who was in that situation always put on different drugs and yeah. on and off of them. Yeah, so yeah. I was very scared of them. And yeah. then when I was in rehab, a lot of the women that I knew, they got put on drugs to the point that they were just in wheelchairs and drooling yep. Yep. over medicated. Yep. Yep. So they scared me. And, and I know that my, my counselors were like, you're more scared of this than a street drug. It's like, well, yeah, she's, she was coherent and now she's drooling. Where'd you, where did you go? Where were you treated? I um actually went to a great place that they, these women saved my life. It was, a, I was in I was in a mental ward for three days when I first got sober. God, this is just taking me back. I don't usually talk about like the details of it like this. I was in a mental ward for three days. Um, That was not really where I belonged. It was just that I was in there because I had superficial cuts because I was trying to make my boyfriend pay attention to me at the end of our our crazy ride. It was actually out in LA. We were there for a week and then I ended up um, rock bottoming out and so they put me in a mental ward. They also, my family had a lot of experience with that. So that was just their first place that they took me. And then they put me in a rehab, a treatment center that was on above the emergency room in a hospital in St. Paul. And that was crazy. You didn't go, we didn't go outside for seven days. You could still smoke inside. It was like disgusting. Um, and it was men and women and that was not good. And I, and then after 10 days, they said my insurance was up. Any sexual acting out there? No, I had a guy who tried to force me to mm. do things. And I, after 10 days, they said, essentially, you're free to go mm. because your insurance is up. And I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to stay sober. Yeah. And so I went down and put myself on general assistance, which is welfare, essentially, because at sure. that point I was 18. Yep. And they, um, Minnesota is a great place to get sober. It's just, they, they joke. It's land of 10,000 treatment centers. Hazelden's right around the corner. Yeah. I was not, I was not in the, that class that could afford Hazelden, but I, 
put myself on general assistance. And then I called around and I found um, a place called Way Wayside House for Women. And like halfway that, house kind of thing. It was at halfway house. Yeah. And I remember calling in the intake woman. I was like, Are what's it like there? And she said, <laughs> You ever heard of boot camp? <laughs> and I said, This sounds perfect. <laughs> I, I needed something like that. I needed yeah. to have my butt kicked. And I was there for seven months. Wow. I ended up yeah, I stayed and to their credit, I've never done heroin again. Um I oh, didn't so say your hair, Let's talk about your heroin, uh, uh, which we call it uh, low self, low self heroin esteem. <laughs> so, so my insecurity around yeah. my junkiness is it so? So junkie has a whole culture, particularly back then. Mm-hmm. The big, you know, tats and uh, streets and Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain just, music yeah. attached to it. Black fair yep. polish. It was you know sort of goth on steroids. You could be a junkie for a long time. Back then. I mean, back then. yeah, back then. <laughs> you that's didn't what I'm usually saying. live. You'd usually most of them li- didn't live to fifty. Fifty was sort of where the cutoff was, uh, but you could go for a while. But it was, but it was very openly underworld. <laughs> it was a very yes. underworld thing, and and everyone kind of knew each other and mm-hmm. kind of sort of uh, ran together. And there was a rock scene and a yeah, whole thing. It was a whole scene associated with it. It was yeah, it was very rebellious. Too. It had a political side to it. And so to, and, and in fact, I've never seen anybody who smoked heroin who did not go on to shooting it. You're, you're the only person I can think of. Uh, I had who's... like the lamest after school special moment. <laughs> 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 I really did. And I've, I've lied about it. I, I just wrote an essay for spectator about, about this junkie pride and how I was so insecure about the fact that I never shot. I I'm pretty sure I've said I've shot it once. I'm I'm sure I've said it said it publicly, but even up until, (laughs) but it was one of those things that a lie told so long that I believed it. And when I got sober, like five years into being sober, I was like, why am I hanging on to that? This is so funny. That's that's a people who are listening may not know that that's a really common thing that years (laughs) of sobriety people go, Oh my God, (laughs) that's a lie. Or, or why did I believe that? Or why did I say that? You know, that was, was, you know, the way denial affects you. I had a guy, a quick story guy actually was a treatment professional. I, I worked with, and um, his wife would, you know, complain about him coming home drunk and raging. And she um, would, you know, he'd come down for breakfast in the morning. She'd always rail on him. You know, what are you doing? You can't, I can't put up with this any longer. And one day he came down and there was a tape recorder on the table. And she goes, I need you to listen to this. And he said, she pushed the play button and he heard this screaming maniac, crazy. And the voice clearly sounded like him. So his reaction was to become enraged that she would dare to hire an actor to make him believe that he behaved like that. But the, the reason I tell the story is not just such a great story about denial, but he didn't realize he had done that. He'd been sober for like five years, like five years into his sobriety. He went, Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so that's to your point. It's, I get it. You don't look back. You don't really let go of all this stuff until you've been sober a long time. So embarrassing. I was writing about it's how funny, much just it's, that no, no, says Bridget, about don't, me. Don't be embarrassed. It's it's it really is one of the reasons I like working with addicts. One one of the many reasons, but one. Well, first of all, it it, it tends to only afflict very rich human beings. I mean, very. You've seen your peers. I mean, just interesting, smart, rich people. But but in their disease and and in around the disease, they're funny as hell. So funny. So I, I, you know, I think laughing is very healthy when it comes to this illness. It is. And yeah, so I, I definitely think the junkie, because there was that culture that you mentioned, the political aspect, the rock and roll. Yeah. There was just this part of me that was always insecure, but I knew I was never somebody that didn't like needles. I just knew myself. And my therapist has said this to me too. She's like, you're always, I've always had the ability to kind of walk right up to the ledge, but pull myself back from it. Um, I, I don't know if that comes from my upbringing and being in such chaos that I couldn't, it's like, I always joke that psychedelics are for rich kids, (laughs) not just rich kids, but psychedelics are for people who don't really, they, they're not worried. They're getting like some call that someone's in a mental ward in the middle of their trip. They had, so And that 
probably isn't just, that's just no, a I, I funny generalization. No, I completely get it. That makes perfect sense to me. So yeah. I never really wanted to be totally it's out a, of control. A, yeah, it's a it's a privilege thing in a weird way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like it's like uh, psychedelic privilege. Yeah. And, and, we almost, you know, we almost set up a separate program for heroin because some of my staff who had been heroin addicts were sort of complaining that the culture, you don't understand the culture and they need that culture to feel safe and to open yeah. up. And we, we, we thought we came close, um, but it, it kind of it sort of moved on from that. Yes. It, it, that doesn't really exist that same way anymore. It's a much more, um, I mean, it's, I'm sure it does, but not the way it did in the eighties, nineties, even it was, that was a thing. No, it was a thing. And I do agree that it's moved on. And I think fentanyl has completely changed things because my husband works in recovery and, uh, it's, it's surprising, you know, these, these folks aren't out there looking for heroin. They're looking for fentanyl. People, yep. people think it's something that just happens to them, but they're, they're actually looking for it. Uh, you that's, know? that's also a new thing that, that yeah. they're literally they're fentanyl drug of choice, drug addicts. Yeah. The, the difficult part for the, uh, tr- on the treatment side is they're only, you know, they have to dose like every four hours. It's a much shorter th- deal. Yeah. Maybe six hours if they're lucky. And and then they, they're they out of it. I mean, really out of it. And they only clear for like 20 minutes. And during that moment of, they're not completely clear, but they're sort of awakening. And they're, they're looking quick. They got to get the next yeah. one going. So you only have small windows to be able to talk to these people. Yeah, no, it's it's really devastating, and it, and you don't live ten, twenty years doing fentanyl. Nope. No, you don't. It's- See what hit blockbusters are streaming free during Popcorn Summer movies on Pluto TV. Watch the first four Indiana Jones movies, or Minari and Maid of Honor. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies. Available on live and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices for free. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never. And the other thing that people don't understand about addiction these days, it is progressive. Mm-hmm. progresses it progressive i don't care if nurses are administering the hell the heroin or the fentanyl it doesn't matter it progresses yeah and that's why people are dying at crazy rates yeah and i think that this is one thing that i was raging against during the pandemic because in particular in california they would have these ridiculous i'm like so you can go to the fucking sorry for swearing super yeah. bowl but yeah. you can't have an aa meeting yeah like, oh my god the, i cannot tell yeah. you how yeah i i still my blood boils because yeah. well, people when they, died when they shut them down i was mortified i was like yeah. that's like shutting down the hospital treatment center it's the same thing for addicts yeah and, and i thought oh boy this is gonna be big trouble the zoom kind of worked a lot better than I expected. That's for sure. And and Zoom has added an element to sort of um, ease people's uh, resistance. You go, just go to Zoom meeting. Just just don't even turn your camera on. Just go. And and so there's that. But as predicted, it didn't last that long. After about six months, then you started seeing people relapsing and all the problems started. Oh, I'll get emotional because people died. Yeah, you need People I knew died. It's recovery is bodies in space. Well, you need people who are like, where have you been? You know, you, you can go to a Zoom meeting and lurk. But if you when I got sober this time, there were times when if I didn't show up or I had a commitment or what you have, you're you're accountable. Somebody's going, oh, I haven't seen Bridget around and somebody should give her a call or check yeah. on her. There's yeah. none of that with Zoom unless no. No, it's yeah. just not the same. Not so, the same. But, but I, but I really, the the healing part. Well, let's talk back to your your incessant brain thing. That you want your brain to shut up. That sounds a little PTSD like. And so, did you have some trauma? Was there something going that way? Um, that's really interesting. Uh, because my brain has always been like that as long as I remember. So even as a little kid, I remember, I, I feel like I was just a neurotic little kid. If there was trauma, I don't remember it. Mm -hmm. We moved a lot, um, which can be traumatic for a kid. My, 
parents got divorced when I was 12. My stepdad was completely out of his mind. Um, there was a okay, lot so, of. So there's something called adverse childhood experiences, ACE. Mm-hmm. And it's like a score. And so divorce is one. Uh, parent with alcoholism or mental illness is another. Uh, moving frequently is another. Uh, if you get to four, <laughs> you're essentially guaranteed addiction if you have that genetic potential. Yeah, so, there's a lot. I'm not. Let's see what is say publicly. There, okay, so right. I'm sure. Okay, I'm so sure there's a fourth and a fifth. <laughs> so fine. So the, the, it's 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 not doesn't always have to be some shattering in single experience. It can be chronic stress and chronic stuff from, you know, a parent in prison is one of those things. A parent mm. with alcoholism is one of those things. That, things that people don't understand. They don't, they don't, we've been so, again, brainwashed in this society that we think, oh, divorce, no big deal. Look, the kids are fine. No, that, is, a adverse, lie. that is an adverse childhood experience, period. It's such a lie. I yeah. hate that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's my husband and I, we have a podcast together now called Factory Settings where we examine just all of those beliefs that are, n- essentially nurture, you know, the stuff you, your socioeconomics and where you were raised and what happened. And both of our stories, we were very pretty good kids who got straight A's and both of us can point to the divorce when all of that changed for, we met in recovery, my husband and I. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's very, it's more unsettling than people like to tell themselves that it is. Oh Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's a catastrophe for everyone, but it is an adverse childhood experience. <laughs> I was you on a podcast get... and someone asked me, how does my child not become a heroin addict? And I was like, don't get divorced. Yeah. No, no offense. To, no, don't no. worry to all the people who are divorced out there, but. No, that's, that's actually decent advice. I mean, that's <laughs> one thing you can do to keep your family intact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then of course people, the way they think, like, well, what else can I do? It's, what, what more can I do? Which is what, what I hear all the time from families. They're always like, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I go, look, okay. I, I understand you'll do anything. I'm going to tell you to do one thing. Okay. And this one thing is not <laughs> exercise more, or lose weight. It's, it's not a, it's not a general recommendation. It's if you do not do this thing, I'm telling you, you are participating in the demise of your loved one. And you are doing, and you're you become unwilling to do the one thing that could help. Go to Al Non regularly and get a sponsor. Okay, what else can I do? But but I mean, what can I do? It's like, <laughs> they reject it immediately before they even <laughs> contemplate it. It's so crazy. And uh, you know, and a few occasionally they'll do it, and then of course it's helpful. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been quite. Um, it's just been very interesting. You know, I it's I'm. I could probably talk to you for like six hours about everything because in a way you were the voice in my head for so much of that challenging time because my parents split up at 12 and when I was 12, 13, that's when around when I discovered Loveline and it was, it was like you guys functioned as some kind of paternal, you in particular, as a, as a kind of paternal figure that helped me navigate a lot of the stuff that my parents otherwise would have. But, you know, I come from that, I am that Gen X generation. Many of us were kind of latchkey kids and, and we were, we come from a lot of divorce and it was, I, it's been, I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, I, I don't, I feel, I just feel lucky that I got sober and, I love being able to talk about sobriety and recovery and healing and trauma and which is a word I think that's now overused immensely mm-hmm. in our culture, but sure. it does exist. And, and being able to give people some hope that they can, they too can get sober and find a way, way out. I, for me, I couldn't, when I got sober, it couldn't just be, I can't drink. I needed something more. And so I had to be curious about what my life could look like without all of these substances, because it was all I really knew from the time that I was 12 until basically 35. Yeah. So that's a long and, run. And what, whatever. So now whatever was motivating that in the first place, still there. Now you have all this d- debris that you've created that you're feeling off all kinds of feelings about that you have to manage. You have no ability to regulate 
your emotions or anything else or your life, your whole life is unmanageable. This it is not just stopping the substance. It doesn't magically everything get better then because that's why people go back because things yeah. get better. No, early sobriety, it's a miracle anyone gets sober. It really is. And I. it is one of the gifts of, it's one of the things that I am reminded of when I go, that's what I like about 12-step programs is you get to work with people who are new and then you're like, oh yeah, that this is so hard. And yeah. the early, the first two years are oh, just yeah. the, sh- they're, a, it's the shit show. You have no coping mechanisms. It- yeah. And your one coping mechanism is taken away. And like you said, now you have all this wreckage that you have to deal with and look at, and you're doing these steps that are bringing up all of the crap. They, you know, a lot of people are like, I had this, this like light that burned after I did my four step. And I was like, I felt like a piece of shit for like months after yeah. I did mine. <laughs> and uh, and my sponsor at the time was like, Oh no, that's, that's normal too. They just don't talk normal. about that. Yeah, if, if somebody felt good after a four, I mean, if they felt lighter that afternoon. Okay. But if they didn't yeah. have rumblings inside <laughs> for quite some time, I was like, mm, let's revisit your inventory. <laughs> what else you is left there? something off? Yeah. Maybe, maybe we ought to think about this again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and 12 Step's been under attack for years now, which has been terrible. Oh, I don't know if it's going to survive wokeism. Really? I'm not not sure. I I hate to say that. Getting young people into sobriety is very difficult. They don't get it. They what do they call it now? It's like sober curious. I yeah. that's my favorite one where it's like just say you need to quit drinking. It's like, yes. oh, I'm just sober curious doing like it like I'm it's just a funny thing to me. It's it's anything but saying you just need to quit drinking and they can't it, drink and anymore. So how is woke gonna destroy this? What do you think's happening? So I think there I know anecdotally of People who have been very turned off and left the program because of, for instance, they made a change to the preamble recently. Do you know about this? No. Okay. So it's, uh, it's a program that used to be blah, 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 men and women, and they changed it to people. And be, I don't know. I mean, I know why, but they made this change to include the non-binary and all, okay. all of these other things and be uh-huh. more inclusive or whatever. Uh-huh. But I know people, old timers, a lot of young people, too, who feel like that's engaging in an outside controversy, essentially, by making that change. And so there's a lot of push to change the language, even though it's been the same way since the 30s. I mean, it's... It's crazy how it's managed to work as long as it has for Closing in on a hundred years. Yeah. Think about that. And I know people say that it doesn't work and I don't, I yeah, don't look, really there know. Is now, there was now a large Cochrane studied Cochrane meta-analysis done. John Kelly at Harvard, Keith Humphreys at Stanford, conclusive. It works as well or better than any professionally managed services. That's my question. What and, what else works? And particularly better if abstinence is your goal. Right. So that's it. It works. It's proven. It's evidence-based. Stop it. Stop yeah. It. And it's free. And you can play about healthcare expense and it's free and it's available 24-7 on every corner. And there aren't enough professionals on earth to sit on addicts the way they need to be sat upon and their peers, because somebody did it for them, are willing to do so. It's and so, so true. this is insanity that people question this thing. It's just disgusting to me. Yeah. It, it works, it's proven, and it's free. It's for I God's know. sakes, it's free. And, and it's so good. It, yeah. And it works. So it's it's it worked for me. It worked for my husband. It's it's and, and to be fair, to I, and I'm not saying that's the only way that people get sober. I'm not course. saying that. People do CBT, people can't get sober and go on replacement therapies and stuff. I, I got involved in this field because I saw this, what you're going, what you went through and your recovery and what it did for you. I saw that happen to some people and I was like, holy shit, what is that? <laughs> yeah. People do that. And so I was not interested in the half measures. I'm interested in helping people restore themselves to, to better than they knew they could be. There's nowhere, nothing else in medicine. Do you go from dying to better than you knew you could be? You just That's go, my you story. Do, yeah, in medicine, you usually go from dying in the world I'm in, you usually go from medicine to chronically ill. Mm. But to go from dying to amazing, that was something that caught my attention. 
Yeah, I always joke. I used to, I, when I first went into the program, there was a speaker and they said everything in my life should be labeled property of AA. And I was like, you, know, <laughs> you hear that when you're new and you're yeah. like, shut up. And now I look around and it's like, my dog, my <laughs> husband, my daughter, this house that I'm sitting, every single thing should be labeled. I'm that lame person right now saying that. It, it really is true. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to kind of roll to a stop. Um, did I miss anything? I mean, we could, no. We could go on and on. We're going to. We're going to go on uh, Walk-In's Welcome. Yeah. So you can hear this conversation uh, flipped uh, in that context. So do where would people go to hear it? Anywhere podcasts are available. Just right. go to Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Fetacy, and you can find me online. And yeah, I'm all over the place. We're going to continue this conversation, except she's going to drive it. And who knows where it might go. We'll figure yeah, that out. Yeah, I'm excited. I am too. Evils will turn. I love it. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Oh, 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 oh,